Amen. Well, it wasn't a, a teddy bear's picnic, but my wife's visit to the woods the other day was certainly a very big surprise. Uh, Linda took Tom to play on the swings at Encliff Park and found herself uh, in the middle of a noisy, people-packed summer, summer festival, a festival celebrating a plethora of alternative therapies and spiritualities. In this, the most irreligious of ages, it seems that people still feel the need to encounter some sort of divine presence. So amongst the many things that were on offer there were earth angels, Tanjiro soaps, Indian head massage, soul reconnection workshops in the geodome. You never knew Hunter's Bar could be so exciting, did you? Richard Dawkins may be number one in the best-sellers list, but actually many still sense that there must be something more to life than simply DNA. So even the British Humanist Society have published a series of essays by serious atheists, including Dawkins, under the rather wistful title, Is Nothing Sacred? Of course, nowhere is that longing for something other, the longing for some sort of divine presence, nowhere is that more obviously seen than in the cult of celebrity. Today, celebrity bric-a-brac is sold like medieval religious relics. We may not want a splinter from the cross of Christ, but some at least will happily part with a thousand pounds to walk off with an offcut from the silk wedding dress of Diana, Princess of Wales. The dress designers David and Elizabeth Emmanuel have recently published a book marking the 10th anniversary of Diana's death. A dress for Diana is available as a limited edition complete with offcut from the bridal gown. The publishers insist that, quote, this isn't just a book. It's an opportunity to become part of the magical day. To take a step closer to the woman who is still alive to so many throughout the world. See, in this, the most irreligious of ages, it seems that people still feel the need to encounter something other. The divine presence even of a 21st century god or goddess. Of course, not everyone's into alternative spiritualities. Some, like the poet Philip Larkin, still wonder whether there's something more in traditional religion, something there that brings them closer to God. In his poem, Church Going, Larkin talks of the the curious habit of many unbelievers, the curious habit of of visiting religious buildings to, to stop and wonder. And he tells in the poem of an incident where he he stands in a church building like this. And he refers to it as a special shell. Now to him this special shell is a symbol of the empty and decaying myth that is Christianity. And yet. And yet he senses that there is something more. It pleases me 
to stand in silence here. It pleases me to stand in silence here. A serious house on a serious earth it is. In whose blent air all our compulsions meet, are recognised and robed as destinies. But is Larkin right? Is the church an empty shell? Or is the church, at least the way the Bible defines it, is the church the very place where 21st century men and women can really encounter the presence of the living God? Now, of course, in one sense, the Bible makes it clear that God is everywhere. If he's the God who made the sea and the land, then as Jonah discovered, you'd be a fool to imagine that you could run away from him. How could you? As the psalmist put it, where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Now the Bible would say to believer and unbeliever alike, you can run, but you cannot hide. And yet although the Bible speaks of God's general presence, it also speaks of God's particular presence. And most significantly in the Old Testament, God's particular presence for his people was found in the temple. Which brings us finally to Psalm 84 and a little dwelling on the house of God. Now I should say the title has caused some confusion amongst a number of people. When the sixth person said to me, was I saying something about the little house, of, a little house on the prairie on Sunday, I realised that the subtlety of the title was slightly lost. There is a play on words, a little dwelling on the house of God. Well, as you read Psalm 84, you'll see that it's composed of three stanzas. And the stanzas are marked with the term Selah, the end of verse 4 and the end of verse 8. Selah seems to be some sort of um, musical direction term, maybe an instruction to the singer, stop and think. And so for once, the three stanzas mean that a three-point sermon isn't contrived. For Psalm 84 gives three truths for the believer to sing and three truths for the unbeliever to consider. Number one, authentic Christian faith longs for God's presence, verses one to four. Authentic Christian faith longs for God's presence. I remember the first time that I felt really homesick. It was my uh, first few weeks at university and walking from my hall of residence to the tube station, I, I crossed one of the main arterial routes into London. And on the gantry above the road, there was a sign with two words that made me long for home. The North. <laughs> now, the two words over the gantry of Psalm 84 are the temple. For here we read the song of an exiled and homesick believer. A believer whose very soul longs for the dwelling place of God, verse 1. How lovely 
is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. Indeed, so intense is this believer's longing for God's house. He describes it in profoundly physical terms. Verse 2, my soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. Now to long to be home in the Old Testament is to long to be in the land, in, in Jerusalem, in the temple itself. And yet what this believer longs for is not real estate, but relationship. The significance of the temple was not the building itself, but the fact that it was the place that God was present and enthroned as king. Authentic biblical faith always longs to know and experience God's presence. And in the Old Testament, God's particular presence was found in the temple, in the house of God. Now, of course, even in the Old Testament, there was a recognition that the temple pointed to a greater reality. So Solomon, as he dedicates the temple in 1 Kings 8, is left wondering, will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built? Of course, the temple mattered. The temple was about relationship, not real estate. But in God's wise provision, the real estate served the relationship. You couldn't be a true Old Testament believer and say, the temple doesn't matter. It's just me and my relationship with God that is important. See, the temple wasn't the relationship, but you couldn't have the relationship without the temple. All of which may be very interesting, but does it really shed any light on the question of God's presence today? Well, yes, it does. It does, as you see, the way in which the Old Testament temple points to and finds its fulfillment in Christ and the New Testament church. You see, Solomon's question at the dedication of the temple finally found its answer in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Will God really dwell on earth, Solomon asked? And the answer of the New Testament is yes. God dwells on earth in the flesh and blood of his Son. So that standing in front of the temple in John 2... Jesus announces to the astonished crowd, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. And of course they thought he was talking about bricks and mortar. It's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to rebuild it in three days? But of course as John pointed out, the temple he had spoken of was his body. See, that is it. Wonder of wonders that God really does dwell on earth, in history, in the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, for he is the temple. He 
is the presence of God amidst his people. And the God who stepped into history in Jesus is still present in his church through the ministry of his Holy Spirit. Facing the cross, Jesus promises his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And with the coming of the Holy Spirit, Paul can refer to the church. He can refer to the church as the temple. For the church is the place where God dwells by his spirit. So Paul, as he writes to the Corinthians, says, don't you know? Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's spirit lives in you. Where then do you encounter the presence of the living God according to the Bible? In the church. Not so much the building, but the the living stones, the community of God's people, which raises all sorts of questions in our highly individualistic and consumerist society. Now, how often I have heard people say, I'm not interested in church. It's just me and my relationship with God that matters. Or how often I have found myself tempted to say, when my experience of church life seems hard work and and difficult, how often am I tempted to say, I don't really need forward. It's just me and my relationship with God that matters. You know, the Bible knows no such thing as private religion. You just can't be an authentic believer and say, the church doesn't matter, it's just my relationship with God. Oh, the church isn't the relationship. But you can't have the relationship without the church. Now, of course, the believer longs to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But for now, there is the immense privilege of every true believer to experience the presence of the living God by his Spirit amidst the community of his people. You see, authentic Christian faith prizes rather than despises the church. For the New Testament church, like the Old Testament temple, is is welcoming and wonderful. See, God is the Lord Almighty, as our version puts it. He's the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. And yet, verse 3, even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young. A place near your altar, O Lord Almighty, my God and my King. See, maybe you're here this morning and you feel very much that you're on the outside of the church family looking in. Now, wondering whether there may just possibly be a place in this community for somebody like you. Yeah, fearing that you're not good enough. Or you're not religious enough. Or heaven help us that you're not forward enough. You don't know, don't you, that even a sparrow can find a place here. 
There's a few of us that have been around a little bit longer. And we put on all the airs and graces of doves and peacocks. But the truth is, it's a room full of sparrows. Nobody important. See, the church is, or at least true to itself, the church should be radically inclusive and astonishingly welcoming. So that whoever you are, and whatever you have done, there is, because of Christ, a place for you here. And do understand that church is not only welcoming, it is wonderful. I know that the church isn't perfect. Quite why anyone would imagine it to be when they read the New Testament, I have no idea. For as I read the New Testament, the church seems full of problems from beginning to end. As someone put it, to dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. See, the church isn't perfect. God's people frustrate us and enrage us and disappoint us, and we invariably reciprocate the favour. The church isn't perfect, but it is a privilege, verse 4. Blessed or happy are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Why blessed? Why happy? Because the living God dwells in and amongst his people. Can there be anything more wonderful than that? Can anything be more astonishing than the presence of the living God in the midst of his people? Now we often say week by week, the Lord is here. Do we have any real sense of the breathtaking wonder of our familiar response? The Lord is here. His Spirit is with us. With us not only when we feel him, but when we don't. With us not only when we are celebrating, but when the darkness in our lives will not lift. With us not only in our lives, but with us at the end of our lives. For even in death, he is with us. Perhaps particularly in death, he is with us. For he will not let us face the final enemy alone. Authentic Christian faith longs for God's presence. Secondly, authentic Christian faith labours towards God's presence, verses 5 to 8. Authentic Christian faith labours towards God's presence. I don't know about you, but you know those adverts that you get at the back of the newspapers? Several of them always make me smile, and the one that particularly makes me smile is one of those sort of electrical body-toning gadgets. Now, there's the picture of the sort of toned, smiling, muscular Adonis, wired up to various sort of muscle-twitching electrical pads, and you know that he's never needed to use one of those in his whole life. And with the picture comes the clearly ludicrous promise that a body like his can be yours. And in delivery of this perfect body, the greatest exertion that will be required of you is the application of the pads and the Herculean effort that is required to flick the on switch. 
then it's a mere six weeks. Six weeks of cake eating, sofa lounging and channel hopping before the lard magically falls away and the inner Olympian athlete arises. It's all so easy, isn't it? And yet deep down you know no pain, no gain. And so too it seems in the Christian life. And yet we're easily taken in, aren't we? We believe the Christian life must be easy. It must be easy if we get it right. There must be some technique or or some experience or some understanding that will make it all easy. Not so, according to the psalmist. The normal Christian experience is hard work. The authentic Christian faith labours towards God's presence. You see, there is for every believer, verse 5, a, a pilgrimage, a journey. In some measure, we experience the presence of God now. We enjoy that. And yet the Bible teaches that the Spirit is only a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And in the now and the not yet of God's presence, the Christian life is an arduous journey that takes us through the hardest of terrain. The Christian life, according to the psalmist, is strength, struggle and supplication. In the midst of whatever we face as believers, there is, verse 5, there is the Lord's strength. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. Now, I think that's surprising, don't you? I think verse 5 is very surprising. For we naturally assume that that blessing or, or happiness is found where? In our circumstances. See, I'm blessed or I'm happy because my job is going well or my health is good or or my family love me or my children are following the Lord. That's where we see blessing. And of course, it's not that those things aren't wonderful, wonderful things. They are. But the psalmist says that ultimately blessing or happiness is found in the strength of the Lord. And that means that your job can be incredibly difficult and pressured. It means that you can be suffering chronic, even deteriorating health. It means that your family relationships can be strained to breaking point and beyond. It means your children can have drifted a long way from the Lord. All this can be true. And yet the psalmist says you can still know the Lord's blessing. For as Derek Kidner puts it in his wonderful little commentary, the Lord's strength answers to the believer's struggles. You see, you can, verse 6, pass through the valley of Baca. You can pass through the most dry, arid and unforgiving deserts of life and you can still be blessed You can still be happy, for the Lord is with you. The Lord is your strength. It's not that this pilgrimage isn't a journey of tears. It often is. 
But the psalmist says there is blessing even in the tears when, verse 8, the Lord God Almighty is your strength. It's curious, isn't it, and yet wonderful how the Lord brings good through the struggles and tears of his people. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they discover what, verse 6? They make it a place of springs. It's true, isn't it, that some of the most battle-scarred saints are the greatest of inspiration to the rest of us. And yet those who in their struggles bring the Lord's refreshment to others invariably discover the refreshment of the Lord for themselves. For he brings, even to them, end of verse 6, he brings autumn rains. In other words, he brings abundant, refreshing water to the sun-scorched paths of our pilgrimage. So I find my mind turning to a Barbara Kershaw a remarkable Christian woman whom the Lord took home earlier this year. And I think even at the end of the strength of the Lord in her frail and failing 90-plus-year-old body, a woman who had buried her husband, her son, her grandson, so many tears, so many struggles, that her strength was in the Lord. She made very few requests to me over the years, but there's one that sticks often in my mind. The psalmist here says that the Christian pilgrimage is a journey of strength and struggle and supplication and prayer. And Barbara would often ask me, would it be possible to say the general thanksgiving more often than we do? Throughout her life, the Lord's strength answered her struggles. And like the psalmist, she prayed. And she presented her requests with thanksgiving, verse 8. Hear my prayer, O Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. Authentic faith longs for and labours towards God's presence. Well, thirdly and finally... Authentic Christian faith serves and is secure in God's presence, verses 9 to 12. Authentic Christian faith serves and is secure in God's presence. See, look down to verse 10. Psalmist says, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Meaning what exactly? Now, what what is it that the psalmist wants? What does he long for more than anything else? Does he want to spend his whole life in a never-ending temple service? Maybe he's just sort of angling for some sort of lifelong position on the Buildings and Fabrics Committee. Or is he some sort of conference junkie? You know, the kind of person who wants to sing worship songs 24-7. Now again, what the psalmist longs for and values is the precious experience of the presence of God. Indeed, so precious is God's presence. He would rather perform the most menial of service where God is present 
Then pitch his tent where the presence of God is ignored or, or rejected, where the values of God are mocked or disregarded. So in New Testament terms, serving in the community of God's people, serving in the church, is truly precious. Why? Because God is there. If we feed, or care for, or clothe, or visit even the least of Jesus' followers, Jesus says we do it to him. That's not that the psalmist is advocating some sort of retreat from the world into a religious ghetto or monastic community, any more than Paul in Philippians has a sort of world-denying death wish. You can, with Paul, desire to be with Christ, which is better by far. You can desire that, and yet you can recognize that in the service of God's people, it may be more necessary to remain in the body, as Paul puts it. See, if you long to be with Jesus, the Bible says you need to get stuck into the church now. Now, of course, still, when we think church, we think buildings and services. But the church is much more than maintaining the real estate and playing in the music group. Important and valuable, though, both those things are. Serving in the church means an involvement in and a commitment to the people of God wherever they are in their families, in their workplace, in their retirement, in their joys, sorrows, happiness. Getting stuck into church may mean cooking meals for an individual or a family under pressure. Perhaps helping a member of your home group care for their housebound spouse. Maybe it means running a support group for Christians in the workplace. It may mean opening your home to the lonely, your wallet to the needy, your mouth to the discouraged. Getting stuck into the church may mean many, many things. And many things that are not confined to this building. But whatever and wherever it is, getting stuck into the church matters because authentic Christian faith serves. And of course, when God's people serve each other, they also serve the world. For when the church functions as it should, it serves the world by both proclaiming and embodying the message of Jesus. So on the one hand, we tell people, this is how you know God through Jesus. And on the other hand, we live lives that demonstrate that the message we proclaim is more than words, even if it's never less. Or as the general thanksgiving puts it, we show forth God's praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives by giving ourselves up to his service. The truth is that such service is often costly and rarely glamorous, and it will never receive the applause of the world. But the psalmist reminds us that it is better to do the most menial of tasks imaginable in the church than receive the greatest honour that the world can give. Now, the psalmist says, actually, to know that, you have to know the grounds of your security. See, you have to know that the Lord God, verse 11, is a sun and a shield. And if you've experienced the undeserved favour that he bestows, if you appreciate that he withholds nothing, no good thing from you, why else would you seek security and honour and blessing anywhere else? 
It's mad, isn't it? The Lord Almighty holds you secure in Christ. Do you really think that a great job or a massive salary can match that? Yours is an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Can even the world's greatest tributes and trophies even come close? It is this God-provided security that liberates us to a truly self-denying service, to know that it is better one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. That's worth noting just as we finish where where this God-provided security is grounded, how we take hold of it. See, ultimately, the security of God's people is grounded where, verse 9? In the Lord's anointed. In the Old Testament, the believer's security was all bound up with the temple. And the temple security was bound up with the success of the king, the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, or as the New Testament will put it, the Christ. So it is because the Father looks with favour on the completed work of the Son, on the anointed, it's because the Father looks with favour on the completed work of the Son that the person who trusts is secure and forever blessed, verse 12. The security of God's presence is only ever found in the success of the Lord's anointed, in the finished work of Jesus. And the psalmist says that that becomes ours when with him we say... O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Well, let's pray, shall we?